the Bible is God's word to us, what do you think God's going to tell us in the Bible? What's the most important thing God's going to tell us? How to have your best life now? How to find a wife in three easy steps? How to better your marriage in five weeks? 40 days of whatever that book title was? That's all this way, right? That's all horizontal. That's all about us. Do you think God's word, God is going to reveal, is going to deposit through the prophets and the, and the apostles of our Lord? Do you think he's going to deposit information through them, inscripturate it for us, preserve it all the way to this day, and the major thrust of it's going to be about us, or is it going to be about him? It's going to be about him, I think. It is my contention that the Holy Scriptures exist to bring glory to God, specifically through what he does in the Redeemer, the incarnate Son of God, in bringing many sons to glory and the recapitulation of all things. That's why we have Scripture. uh, Scripture is because sin is and God has a remedy for it. He's going to take the sin-stained creation and creatures and he's going to do with them what he pleases and he's going to bring everybody to the eschatological, the eternal state. All for his own glory. And this he has given or he has deposited into the lap of his son. So the Bible, we would say this, goes from creation to the fall into sin to new creation via redemption by the incarnate Son, and all for the glory of the triune God, and the well-being of His people. Coronavirus is here. It doesn't affect the recapitulation of all things. It's not going to derail the Lord Jesus. listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. What is the Bible about? Is there a unifying theme which makes sense of all of its parts? In a day where the Bible is used to sell diets, self-help principles, and therapeutic programs, we need to step back and realize that the Bible is not primarily about us. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. This understanding has a major impact on the way we interpret all of the scriptures, and it is sorely needed in our day. Richard Barcellus, pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church of Palmdale, California, gives some helpful instruction on this subject in the following sermon, titled, The Recapitulation of All Things in Hermeneutics. A meditation on a part of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. The New King James Version reads this way, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him, that is in Christ. So the Father, in this context, the Father is to be praised for what I've called comprehensive redemption, the redemptive work of Christ that ends up, ends up, affecting all things created. Uh, That doesn't mean everything created gets 
saved, um, but it does mean everything created gets affected by what Christ does. He becomes the judge of both the living and the dead, the saved and the unsaved, for instance. He's Lord of demons. He's Lord of the devil. He's Lord of all creatures. He's Lord of the creation itself. This verse or this word here that he might gather together, some versions might say that he might sum up all things in Christ. I don't think any version translates it that he might recapitulate all things in Christ, though I prefer that translation myself. Um, It means to head up or to bring all things under one head. Um, Some of you might know the Greek word kephale, head. It's in that participle there. Uh, and older writers called it recapitulation. That is the bringing of all the entire created uh, cosmos, the entire universe under the headship and lordship of Christ because of the fall into sin in order that he might bring things to their intended goal in light of creation and fall and God's purposes of redemption. This is a massive verse. This little phrase here uh, that he might gather together or sum up all things or recapitulate all things in Christ is huge, is massive. And I can't do it justice. But last week, we I looked at it, tried to explain it a little, said it came in a context, and the context is praise of the Father, Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us, verse 4, in him before the foundation of the world, so on and so forth. He is to be praised, the Father is to be praised for the comprehensive redemption that is wrought in the Son, done by the Son. The Son, the Son, the Lord Jesus, the incarnate Son here, His work affects everything. Everything is gathered together in one under Him. And since, according to other teachings of Scripture, the incarnate Son of God is the last Adam, the antitype, of the first Adam, Romans 5.14. Uh, he is the one who heads up all things and recapitulates all things or brings all things uh, together under one head. And we could even say this, does what Adam failed to do. Um, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Adam was the first sinner. Adam fell short of the glory of God. Jesus uh, does not sin. He does not fall short of the glory of God. He is the agent through whom the Father brings many sons to glory. He suffered and they enter into glory. Adam fa- failed to enter into glory. Adam failed to uh, comply with the stipulations of a covenant imposed upon him that would have rewarded him with what we call glory, a quality of uh, human uh, existence that's better, that was better, that is better than Adam's created existence. Um, that's why the end is better than the beginning. Right, Andrew? You're both named Andrew. Um, this task of the recapitulation of all things is given to the Son. And last week I gave a paraphrase of John Owen. But this week I have a quote, an actual quote. So I don't have to say John Owen said something like this. Here's what he said. John Owen, 17th century, uh, uh, Puritan theologian, uh, the favorite of many, certainly one of my favorites. 
In his third meditation upon the glory of Christ in the recapitulation of all things, he used that word, he says this, in particular, the Lord Christ is glorious herein, in that the whole breach made on the glory of God in the creation by the entrance of sin is hereby repaired and made up. The beauty and order of the whole creation consisted in its dependence on God by the obedience of the rational part of it, angels and men. Thereby were the being, goodness, the wisdom and power of God made manifest. But the beauty of this order was defaced and the manifestation of the divine perfections under the glory of God eclipsed by the entrance of sin. But all is restored repaired and made up in this recapitulation of all things in one new head, Christ Jesus. Yea, the whole curious frame of the divine creation is rendered more beautiful than it was before, better than the beginning. So what I did last week in light of this calling teaching of the the recapitulation of all things under the headship of Christ as we thought about uh, first things, remember the technical word for that is not proctology, it's protology, pro first, uh, uh, logos, words or study of, the study of the first things of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3. And we looked at that, and last week uh, I concluded this under the first things in light of recapitulation. Christ then brings creation to its eschatological goal. But creation's eschatological goal was part of its protological potential, though dependent upon the obedience of God's son, Adam. Christ is the obedient son who recapitulates all things, thus bringing all things to their intended terminus or goal. Now this week, I'd like to consider this teaching this Pauline doctrine, it's not just Pauline, of the recapitulation of all things, and how that might affect the way we interpret Scripture. I think it does. Uh, in our day, at least the way I was trained, I wasn't trained at seminary to interpret Scripture theologically, that is to allow my doctrine of X, Y, or Z to affect the way I approached and interpreted texts. Uh, that's in my thinking now, that's not even a Christian method of interpreting the Bible. Everyone brings presuppositions, determinative presuppositions to texts. So the best thing to do is to get the right ones. And the right ones aren't to be found in Sean's head unless Sean gets them from Scripture. Uh, the right ones are to be found in Scripture itself. So there's this there's this hermeneutical circle, some people call it, where texts should help us interpret texts, where the Bible should help us interpret the Bible, where God's word should help us interpret God's word. So I want to think about the recapitulation of all things, rendering all things more beautiful than it was before, as Owen says, and the interpretation of scripture. Sometimes, you know, that word interpretation, hermeneutics is, is another word for it, the science of, the methods or principles of uh, interpreting texts. Think about this in this recapitulation thing. Uh, Adam was a type of Christ. Christ, therefore, is the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. 
And I think that doctrine itself, Adam the first, Adam the last, Adam a type, Christ the antitype or fulfillment, has implications for how we interpret the Bible. For instance, Ephesians 1, 8 through 10, text we're looking at, requires that we understand Adam's vocation and his function in order to understand our Lord's vocation and function properly. If Adam the last is the antitype of Adam the first, then in order to understand what Adam the last has to do and undo, we have to understand what Adam the first was assigned in the first place. If you don't, you won't fully understand the last Adam's work. So if you get the garden wrong, you're going to get a lot of other things wrong. Correct? Adam the first is garden theology, garden uh, revelation. So we have to understand his vocation. So uh, since he was a type of Christ in the garden, we should expect both correspondence between Adam and Christ, but also Christ, we should expect him to be better than Adam. Adam, uh, Christ as the antitype to Adam isn't, aren't related to each other on a one-to-one level. Adam is both like and unlike Christ. Uh, or Christ is both like and unlike Adam. Um, the technical term used here is the antitype is an escalation of the type. It is better than the type. The, the, the antitype, the fulfillment, Christ, is better than Adam. He does a better work, a higher, more glorious work than Adam. Christ excuse me, where Adam failed, our Lord succeeds. Paul's understanding of Christ is conditioned then by a rich typology that is essential if we would understand him properly. I'm not the first one to say that. Others have said that before. You can't understand Paul's teaching about Christ unless you understand the Adam-Christ typology. And it's not only essential to understand Paul's thought, but you can't understand the Bible correctly without it. This type-antitype relationship between Adam and Christ. So, um, understanding Paul's language of heading up, summing up, Uh, recapitulating all things in Christ has to be done in a scriptural context, which includes Adam the first, Adam the last. So that will condition our interpretation, not only of this phrase, the recapitulation of all things, but everything else in the Bible as well. It'll condition, it should condition the way we understand the whole scope of the progress of redemptive history in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. Basically, the technical term for that is biblical theology, the um, the history of redemption, the understanding of how God uh, reveals himself, the laws, the method, methods, the, uh, the, the philosophy of God's self-disclosure as presented to us in Holy Scripture, And we see how God acts and then God 
raises up Moses, for example, to, to be a penman to record his acts. And then later in the prophets, you'll find the prophets picking up language from Moses and giving us a little more information about us, about it, so that later texts sometimes shed light on earlier texts. It's because this history of redemption is is organic. It's all connected, but it's unfolding slowly but surely and picking up steam. And God is doing this through these human writers. So this, this way of looking at scripture should in turn affect the way we not only look at the whole but the way we look at the parts as well, the way we look at the forest, but also the way we identify and analyze each of the trees. And when we analyze a tree in the forest, we have to never forget, we must never forget, that tree is an individual uh, uh, aspect of the entire forest. It is in a context. And so we're that's what we're trying to do here, put this in, in a context uh, if biblical theology seeks to identify the Bible's storyline, the Bible's narrative uh, movement, uh, and it does, then it, it has to come to some conclusion at some point. If you say, well, what's biblical theology? Well, it's, it's the study of the Bible to determine its, its pro- progress, its, its, its uh, uh, epics of redemptive God depositing redemptive knowledge to his people through his prophets and the apostles, the writers of scripture, all leading to a terminus. And so if that's what it is, then should you should be able to reduce it down to a proposition or a sentence. If I ask you the question, uh, could you reduce what the Bible is all about to, to a proposition or a sentence? You know that uh, some... Um, theologians and highly respected ones would answer, no, you can't do that. The Bible's so rich and so diverse and so this and so that you can't reduce it to a single proposition. There's no center. There's no target. There's no bullseye to the scriptures. It's just, it's about God and Israel and Christ and the church and a lot of things. So you can't, can't reduce it. Uh, if I was British, I would say rubbish. I think they're totally wrong. I think you can. If, if somebody came to you and says, said, uh, uh, what is the Bible all about? When it's all said and done, what's its goal? What is it aiming to commun- communicate? Can you reduce it to a statement or two? I don't think you would say, no, I can't reduce it to a statement or two, or that question can't be answered. But if you didn't say no, and you said yes, and you attempted to do that, your answer would be stating a conclusion Based on all your your study of the entirety of Scripture, you came up, here's my conclusion. Here's my answer to your question. And I think that can be done. Um, I think there is an overarching teaching of Scripture that can be reduced to basically a proposition. And I think that Paul's words in Ephesians 1.10 um, lend credence to, to the, what I just said. The recapitulation of all things in Christ. If, if God, through Christ, is doing a work that affects the entirety of the cosmos, the, and, and, and all the way to this day, and the major thrust of it is going to be about us, 
or is it going to be about him? It's going to be about him, I think. So I think when you reduce the whole thing down to, to a proposition, I don't know if I have it here someplace. Oh, here it is. It is my contention that the Holy Scriptures exist to bring glory to God. That's a no-brainer, right? Specifically, through what he does in the Redeemer, the incarnate Son of God, in bringing many sons to glory and the recapitulation of all things. That's why we have Scripture. Uh, Scripture is because sin is and God has a remedy for it. And he's going to take the sin-stained creation and creatures and he's going to do with them what he pleases and he's going to bring everybody to the eschatological, the eternal state. All for his own glory. And this he has given or he has deposited into the lap of his son. And that's why uh, even creation itself is sun tilted from the beginning, Colossians 1.16, and redemption is sun tilted. And when, when, you, when you read about the doctrine of redemption in Scripture, it terminates on the work of the mediator for us. You, you can argue the same from, for creation as well. It's all about what God does, the triune God does through the Son in bringing many sons to glory via the recapitulation of all things, we could say. So the Bible, we would say this, goes from creation to the fall into sin to new creation via redemption by the incarnate Son and all for the glory of the triune God and the well-being of his people. It does end up terminating on us as well. But it's after you say all those you know, flowery things that I just said. It does affect us. It does put us in a better condition, certainly than our created state and way better than our fallen state. It brings us to glory. This uh, the father has given to the son to to do for us or in the words of John Owen, yea, the whole curious frame of the divine creation is rendered more beautiful than it was by virtue of what the last Adam does. The last Adam does what the first Adam failed to do. He takes not only his sons to glory, but as Paul tells us in Romans 8, even the creation itself is longing for the redemption of the bodies of the sons of God, because the creation knows, if the creation creation could speak, uh, isn't that funny, Paul? Creation longs. Uh, did you ask the creatures? Did you ask the tree? Did you ask the mountain? Did you ask the sun? Did you ask the moon? It's a figure of speech. Paul's saying, look, God is going to affect, alter, even the created, the cosmos, when he alters his people via the resurrection. So the creation longs for the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection, because the creation is waiting uh, a renovation of itself because of the curse inflicted and the cosmic scope of the recapitulation of all things in him. Things, whether they be in heaven or on earth, visible 
or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities or powers, as Paul says in Colossians 1.16. All things were created for him and by him. And in him, 117, all things consist or maintain their current form of existence. There's a, an implicit argument for the divinity of, of our Lord. In him, everything was created. By him and for him, everything was created. But all these creatures, everything that exists, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, authorities, things in heaven, things upon earth, things under the earth, they exist in their current form of existence by virtue of the execution of his power. And he is head of the church. There's redemption. Creation in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Who is the head of creation? In one sense, the son. It was for him. Uh, who is head of redemption? The son. Who is the recapitulator of all things? The son. Who assigned him to this, this task? The father. What does the spirit do? Everything the Father and the Son does. Because the triune God acts as he is. Trinity. So when God is acting in creation, it's God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When God is acting in redemption, it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working uh, uh, his providence out in such a way as to bring glory to himself by virtue of what he does in the last Adam, the incarnate son of God who became man for us and for our salvation. Now this has sweeping practical implications. And one is this. Um, one is this. Coronavirus is here. It doesn't affect the recapitulation of all things. It's not going to derail the Lord Jesus. It's not like something can happen in providence that shocks the Trinity. Oh, look what happened under the instrumentality of divine providence. Wait a minute. God doesn't speak to God that way as if there's another God outside of God doing things that God's not himself doing. If that makes sense. Nothing can derail this recapitulation uh, uh, as Sam Waldron called it one time, glory train. God has made promises that God, in order to be God, must fulfill and will fulfill. And all the promises of God, as we were reminded this morning, are yea and amen in Christ. And God has promised his son uh, everything. <laughs> he is the head of all things, Ephesians 1.22 to the church, to the benefit, to the well-being of his people. That's an amazing thing. The apple of God's providential eye is not the abstract world or the world of creatures considered abstractly. The apple of God's providential eye, though he's providentially ruling everything, is the bride of the sun. And so in one sense, we could say all providence is working in such a way that the church continues to be what it is and do what it's supposed to do until God's finished, until Christ comes again. And I think in the midst of wondering about the future and um, 
panic around us, it's good to remind us that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Though things seem to be going wacko and crazy and people are out of their minds, the word of God stands forever. And that should encourage our souls in Christ. Let's pray. Father, please help us to think through this grand, massive theme of the recapitulation of all things in him, in Christ. We can scratch the surface of it. We can drink some of the fruit of it. We can never exhaust it. And in understanding it, we can be greatly reminded and encouraged, not thrown off the tracks ourselves, but reoriented to think around the truths that no man, no government, no disease can alter in any way whatsoever. If God is for us, who can be effectively against us? Nothing created and not even God can be against us because we're in Christ. This is a great comfort to our souls, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CVTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable, online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.